Hey everyone, my name's Jen. I'm a licensed minister, a certified trauma-informed coach, and your host. Today we're here to say the pain. the pain a podcast brought to you by new course coaching a trauma-informed coaching company focused on trauma recovery Welcome back, everybody. It's great to have you here with us today. We are excited to have Alexis Albro. She is coming to us from Cleveland, Ohio. She is a full-time trauma-informed coach. Shout out to the trauma-informed coaches out there. And is the founder of Survivor Rising. On top of being a public speaker as a sexual assault advocate. We got connected through our uh, coaching certification, and we have stayed connected since. So Alexis, welcome. I am just so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I'm so excited for this podcast. And uh, we are in the month of April, and we were talking about how it's just really fitting with uh, Sexual Assault Awareness Month to kind of focus on that theme. And I've already mentioned that you are a sexual assault advocate. So why don't you just kind of give yourself a little bit of an introduction? If you want to give yourself a plug for what you're doing right now, feel free. Yeah. Yeah. So I am um, a certified trauma-informed coach, founder of Survivor Rising, um, working with survivors to help them build a life after trauma. I'm also a daughter, a sister, a friend. I'm a dog mama of Coconut who is laying across me right now. Um, And I am also a survivor turned trauma-informed coach. Um, My, you know, experience as a survivor has been a survivor of sexual violence across the lifespan, which I'll kind of get a little bit into that as we go um, and I share more. But my first experience was in my early teens and um, something that really impacted me from that experience was that I wasn't, once I had the courage to speak up about the sexual assault that I had experienced, I wasn't initially believed. And that really kicked off nearly a decade of dissociation, negative coping mechanisms. um, And that was my way. and, And I know this now that that was my way of surviving. And that was my way of coping with the pain that I was feeling um, not only from the assault, but also from not being believed. Um, and then in that decade afterwards, there were additional assaults, domestic violence, and being groomed ultimately by two human traffickers who were operating in the sex trafficking business, um, which I won't get into too much 
today. Um, but that is a big part, you know, it's something I want to make clear as well is I, my family is wonderful. I have friends. I always had a high GPA and high school and college. I was involved with sports and clubs and sororities. Um, and, you know, unless someone really knew me, a lot of people didn't know that that's what I was experiencing through that decade. Um, I finally, I received treatment for complex PTSD about 10 years after that first incident. And, um, you know, life was just really going great. I, my, my dad had just what we thought be an aggressive cancer. We had, um, I know I had a promotion at work. I just had a Peloton delivered that I saved up for, for so long. Um, life was just so good. And I really let my guard down and began to trust again. And then on the evening of March 16th of 2021, someone with connections to my past, who I later found out was a former law enforcement officer. Um, he came into my home and uh, strangled me twice, as well as over the course of two hours and three minutes, sexually assaulted me at gunpoint. Um, and as traumatizing as that was, there was a lot of healing that I had already started on prior to that happening. And I do believe, you know, that healing and growth that I worked on for myself is what helped me stay alive in the moment as well as afterwards. Um, but then that, you know, started the whole cycle of working with the justice system. And, um, and through that, you know, I did have my family and friends and certain privileges that I am now very aware that not everyone has. And, you know, that crossed my mind a lot through my experience of like, I had people to go home to and a lot of people don't, um, or their family and friends are the perpetrators of the crime. And so they're now going home to a home that is no longer that home that they thought it was, that it was safe. Right. Um, so that's kind of why I, I, I knew at that point that I really needed to dedicate my life mission to creating a more healed and less hurt world, which is why I started Survivor Rising. It's why I'm doing the work I'm doing now as a speaker and advocating for victims of violence, both men and women. Um, but I do pr work primarily with women, um, but it's just so prevalent and re-victimization re and re-traumatization is so prevalent. I really want to hit on what re-traumatization is because we hear that in our society and we we have this concept of don't trigger me but i would like to <laughs> i would like to better look at how re-traumatization affects an individual so can you kind of you talked about even just going through the justice system and the re-traumatization that happened so can can you just maybe talk about what is re-traumatization and what, how is that really affecting somebody when they're trying to heal? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I think even the word triggered, um, I, I know, you know, my sister who is, has been so supportive through all of this, but she'll be like, you know, her, a chip will drop on the floor and she'll say, I'm triggered. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, it's just a potato chip. It's going to be okay. <laughs> like, 
you know, um, and so it is funny how, like, even though we are bringing the conversation about, like, about sexual assault, about re-victimization, about re-traumatization, it's still, you know, sometimes the education, the actual meaning behind all of these really gets hidden. Um, so re-traumatization is when someone does experience secondary wounding from the impacts or effects of other people or society. Um, I know in an organization that has been so impactful in my healing is End Violence Against Women International, EVA International. They're the ones that um, just a couple of days ago, actually on Wednesday, it was Start by Believing Day. And that is Start by Believing is their campaign that they had started. And it is about teaching friends, family members, law enforcement, the courts, everyone how to be trauma-informed so that way we prevent re-traumatization and um and you know one of those being not being believed first being believed and what that healing journey can look like for both um as i had mentioned in my first experience and mind you when you're a kid and under i know you know Diana talked a little bit about this um, in your last episode. As a kid, you know, our brain is still developing. We're still trying to figure out the world. And not being believed during that time can can be very hurtful. And it can be hurtful as an adult too, um, in different ways. But the first, my first experience, I was not believed. And that's not you know, anything wrong with a lot, a lot of things had to do with education. Trauma was not something that I had heard. I mean, you know, I didn't even identify with that word at all until two or so years ago. Um, and the words, you know, consent, domestic violence, you know, there, there's some of these terms that like, at least where I live in my high school, we did not talk about that. And if we did, it was like, extreme, extreme scenarios that felt so far away. Like that would never happen to me. That would never happen to my friends. That would never happen. But guess what? Now it actually ha has happened to me, my best friend, a lot, you know, of other family members and friends. And, you know, like you start to realize how often and common it is. But um, for me, the re-traumatization happened by not being believed that first time. Um, now in 2021, when I was believed, you know, 2021 wasn't that long ago. And I'm here today talking about it. That is a very different experience than I had when I was younger. Um, and so, you know, the healing that I've been able to have, the sustainable healing, the healing, you know, the tools, that is what has helped me. But if we don't start by believing, we risk re-traumatization. And that's especially common with law enforcement. Um, I know one of the officers, so mo one of the officers, which he didn't do anything wrong necessarily based on his training because he wasn't a sex crimes detective, um, which the detective just wasn't there yet. But some of the initial questions were triggering. <laughs> Um, and actually triggering where it was like, well, why did you open up the door? You know, and questions like that, that are, or why did you do this? Or why did you think, you know, anything that starts with why is probably not a good question to ask any survivor of trauma. Um, 
so, you know, I think that that has been, that's been a big part of the re-traumatization that I experienced. I think also workplace, um, workplaces can do a lot when it comes to either helping people heal or secondary wounding. And I'm not just talking about hospitals and law enforcement. I'm also talking about just your average workplace, you know, um, a barista at Starbucks, a manufacturing worker who operates CNC machines, an office worker, a teacher. And then you also talked about how you didn't identify with the term trauma. And I think that's just something you and I have gotten to see is there there's kind of a stigma around trauma because it's like, well, well, like I, I'm not, I, I'm not as bad as somebody else. And just kind of understanding, diving into the world of what trauma-informed means, but then also looking at, some people like to say, I have little T trauma or I have big T trauma, uh, but actually just taking down the wall and being willing to address what trauma is. And it really has to do with how it affects us physically, mentally, emotionally. And I understand that there's varying degrees and, and you shared that you have um, quite a, was it, you said a decade, correct? Over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. From age and, 14, 15 on. And so what, why don't we start back? Because you said you were not believed at the beginning mm-hmm. and then you were believed in the second and, and we're kind of breaking this up into two parts. We're saying the first set was when you were 14. And would you say like 14 to what age was kind of like how this first event happened? Was it 14 to 24? It was around, and I think by, by that point I was 15. It was like 15 to 24, 25. And I'm okay. Like, yeah, yeah. And so within that decade, that's like the first incident. And then March 21 was a few years after that. Yes. So in looking at not being believed versus being believed, what was the difference in the healing journey? Yeah, and that difference was, it it was a huge difference. (laughs) I never healed. And, I, and, you know, I say healed as if there's a completion or a finale. <laughs> and healing is really a journey. It's a life. I, I do believe healing is a lifelong journey. It's not like we're all of a sudden healed. Um, but prior to 2021, I never really, or maybe maybe that within that year, I had um, started seeing a trauma-informed, very trauma-informed therapist. She's also an EMDR specialist. um, And that focuses a lot on how trauma impacts the body. And I had done talk therapy and that's really all I had done actually. And, you know, cause that's what we were, that's what I was told is talk therapy. That's going to get you the answers. Um, And I never got the answers. I was just going down a deeper hole of convincing myself that the ways that I was acting was completely normal. And, you know, it didn't help that friends were also saying, oh yeah, the way that you're acting is completely normal. Cause then that just validates what normal is. Right. So it's like when I wasn't believed, 
first believed that journey looked like needing to find someone who could help me see that I had a future and I was worthy of a future that I wanted and that I could see and that I didn't deserve pain. I didn't deserve the bad things that have happened to me and I don't deserve more bad things to happen to me. Um, and the healing prior was not sustainable. If I did heal, it was a couple months here, a couple months there. Um, but then all of a sudden I would try to get into a relationship or I would have a bad day at work or I would have, you know, in a lot of the time, actually, I do think about, um, my dad, if I had experienced that at a, at a younger age, um, trying to support him, who is just like a very best friend of mine, um, I could not do that. I would not be able to make it through to a place that is healthy. Um, and to me, sustainable he healing is necessary no matter who you are, because we can very much put a bandaid on our feelings and emotions. It's very different when we have to rewire things, when we have to feel things with our body and acknowledge the impact that trauma makes on our life and that, you know, it affects so many different areas. And um, yeah, so my healing journey definitely was much greater when I was believed and um, and I think, you know, age had to do with that too. I was older. I had also already started that journey of like, okay, let me make sure I knew what helped me with my mental health. I knew what was a trigger for me. I knew, um, you know, I also had, um, when I had completed the rape kit and went to the hospital, knowing that the DNA was in a, in the system where like that, there's a level of reassurance there that I had as well. Um, but the support of family and friends and like feeling fully that people, no matter what, believed what had happened to me made me be able to acknowledge it in a way that I had never been able to in the past. And one thing I really want to point out was that you and I, met in November of 21. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, that was when you and I started our courses. And actually, you and I were very first partners. Do you remember that by chance? Yeah, <laughs> I do, which really opened me up to like, being able to open up in that class. So that was wonderful. Oh, well, that thank you. Wonderful. I'm so glad. <laughs> but it was funny, because like, in those classes, we just got thrown into breakout rooms right away. And they're like, congratulations, mm -hmm. start coaching. And I was like, I have no idea who I'm going to get. And, and I don't know what I coaching is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going through my head. <laughs> I, I mean, I was like, this is like the very first time. And so, so you and I connected there. But what, what I want to draw out of that is that that was November of 2021. And you had experienced assault in March of 21. So that's just eight months. Yeah. And the difference in you being able to 
move forward from a decade versus eight months, I think is really important to highlight. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I also want to like make it clear too, though, that that was part of my healing. The science around trauma for me personally, going from someone who I began to not believe myself over time. Mm -hmm. And I thought everything was my fault. And, you know, and I do take responsibility still for some things, but, you know, our body is doing everything it can to keep us alive. Every single reaction we have, the times I haven't fought back, the times that I didn't scream loud enough, the times where I, or like, you know, the trauma I had explained wasn't in order because I didn't remember fully because I was dissociating at times. That understanding the why and the science for me was a massive part of my healing. And so I think taking those courses just in, you know, becoming a trauma-informed coach, that was a big part of my healing that I don't know that I would be where I am today without, without that. So, so yeah, it, I was in a, I was in a place that now even, you know, when you say it, it, it sounds a little wild because at that point I was still, I think it was October that was last time I went to the court maybe. Mm-hmm. So, wow. you know, that was like right beforehand, <laughs> right yeah. before we started class. I was still living in my old place, I believe. So I was still in the place where I was, um, where I was assaulted. So I had not moved yet. You know, there were still, it, there was still a lot going on still, but I think that that was my way of being able to understand that it wasn't my fault and that I believe me, and I believe that my body was doing everything it could to protect me. And that's a great segue into the cycle of shame, blame, and guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly you and I have had a lot of deep dives into that cycle, uh, just in the work that we're doing, but somebody who experienced it on the level that you did, maybe you could just talk about kind of what that cycle looked like in your life, because you did talk about like, I didn't believe myself. I didn't, you know, I, I, I needed somebody to believe in me and believe that I could have a future. There was hope, you know, there was just a lot of things that for you and you even talked about like that you were worthy of that. And that's where a lot of times people don't recognize that's a heavy indicator of shame in their life. And we talk about that word, but we don't always understand it. So could you just kind of talk about the cycle of shame, blame, and guilt where you're, where you were standing? And I think it's easier to blame ourselves than to blame someone else because that takes back the control of the situation. Um, if it's someone else's fault or if someone else hurt me or if someone else raped me, I don't have control over that about it. So I think part of that shame, blame, and guilt, um, or more so the blame and the guilt is more of a coping mechanism as well, where it's like, okay, I had control over the situation, so it's my fault. But also, you know, is it though, or are you saying that because you don't want 
to feel like the person um, you didn't have any control. So I think that that's like a big part of that. I think also it being related to the word sexual and sexual assault is, <laughs> you know, I think about it all the time. If you hear someone get robbed, everyone at your work knows about it. And like everyone at your somewhere, family, everyone knows about it. They can support you. Now, if you experience sexual assault, it's kept quiet, right? Because like people, and not that it should be, but people don't feel comfortable talking about it because now all of a sudden it has to do with, you know, <laughs> it, it has to do with sex, although that's not sex, that's rape. Yeah, and it's so just an awkward conversation. It is an awkward conversation, but it also, I think a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to bring it up or I don't want to have to have that conversation because I don't want them to need to like go through that. They're already going through it. You not yeah. acknowledging it is just causing more isolation. The first time something happens, um, survivors of sexual assault are not believed. The process is not fun. It's terrible. And whether or not they decide to go with the justice system or not. Um, so when someone experiences a second crime or a third crime or even more than that, that shame just increases and we begin to blame ourselves for what has happened. Um, and so I think that that is something that I know in my own experience, intimacy became something that was intimacy equaled violence, intimacy equaled pain, even love. Love to me was pain and violence and it was trauma and it was, and that's what I thought it was. Um, and, you know, when you realize that you're living your life like that, it's very easy to be like, it's, it's my fault. Um, and it, it's really important for any survivor that's listening, as well as any supporter of a survivor to know that it's not your fault because to, you know, be able to heal. Um, it's important that we, you know, kind of look at things from that perspective because we're all just trying to survive and, um, yeah, but there can definitely be a lot of shame, blame and guilt around that. Um, especially when it comes to anything related to sexual violence. And you had mentioned, you know, being, being assaulted maybe the second time or the third time. And I know that you and I have had the conversation and you, you in your, um, public speaking talk about how victims are 35% more likely to be affected by violence again. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's 35% more likely if a victim, like in general, no matter the age, when it comes to children. So most, um, so m a lot of crimes, I believe that it's 79% according to, um, like rain and, and, and violence against women international. Um, so 79% of females experience are, are raped before the age of 18. That is childhood sexual abuse. <laughs> if it's yeah. under 18, um, or th th that's actually under, I'm sorry about, uh, that's 
under 25. So 80% have been sexually assaulted under the age of 25. And it's like 40 something percent have been assaulted under the age of 18. But if someone experiences sexual abuse or violence under the age of 18, they are actually twice as likely to experience it as an adult. Now, I want you to think about how many people, if you have 10 people in the room that are let's say all females, just because it does tend to happen more to females. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen to men as well. But like, that's a significant number of people are experiencing not just one crime, but a second crime. I think that that, you know, comes up more than we even know. So why are they more likely to experience crime on that level? Yeah. And they're more likely to experience crime because of, um, First of all, when it comes to children, the development, you know, you are not fully develop, developed both physically and mentally and emotionally at that time. It interferes with neurological and um, neurological development and emotional regulation, ner nervous system regulation. It interferes with the way that we see the world and a lot of the things that we think about the world. Um, people can be seen as dangerous, as I said, with like love or intimacy. I had a great relationship. I, ha I have always had a lot of people that I love and a lot of people that have loved me. But over time, you know, I think about that very first experience that happened. And I remember getting into the car with a friend and she said, well, well, it's cool. He's popular. You're mm -hmm. fine. You know, and, and then with the second time something bad happened, it was, um, and even just a comment, I remember there was one um, relationship where he was a great, it, it was a good relationship. He's a good guy who said something bad. And it, it was just the thought of, he, he had said something about, um, about my weight at that time, um, which, and he had said, I've never been with someone so fat before. And wow. other than that, he was a great person, yeah. <laughs> great oh, relationship, wow. but it's, it's that, you know, it's like these things, even though that was one thing that was said, it starts to rewire the way that we think about ourselves and our self-worth and who we are and who we are, who, you know, I started to rewire my brain, not consciously, but I now realize it, that I started to think that my mind, my body was not mine, mm. that it was that of a man. And specifically a man who was aggressive, assertive, you know, some, and if someone wanted something like it wasn't my decision and like, I didn't have a choice or control over that. Um, so I think that, so that's, that's a big reason why re-victimization happens. Um, it also, you know, I, I was just thinking about it the other day that the question we tend to ask people is why did this happen more than like, why, why were you abused more than once? Why did you experience such terrible experiences again? Um, why did this happen again? But it's like, why aren't we asking why are abusers able to abuse more than once? You know, I, I think the statistic is around one. So if someone commits rape, they are also, it's, I think it's around nine other rapes that they commit. Um, on average, that's how many, like if someone doesn't get caught the first time, which we know that um, 
98% of rapists will never spend one day in jail. Hmm. So if someone does something one time, it is likely that they are going to do it again to someone else. So I think, you know, the question of like, why are we letting this happen is not for the survivor. It's more for like, how are we giving abusers the opportunity to do this again? So there's a lot that goes with re-victimization, but I think for something that is so common, it's not really talked about. And our system, healthcare system, our society, our, and especially our justice system is written in, it's like a computer. It's written in all zeros and ones. It's black and white. It's yes or no. And like trauma is gray. Revictimization is gray. Retraumatization is gray. And guess what? Humans are gray. <laughs> yeah. Like we are very much not, you cannot put anyone in a box and we like to because that's easy and it's easy for our brain to work that way um and with the criminal justice system it is very black and white and that is not a space where and i think that makes it really hard to go through to go through that and that leads to further re-victimization and i know you know so, some therapists have even told me that they see people at 60 70 years old that are getting a divorce for the first time. And all of a sudden it brought up a ton of trauma hmm. and they remember, oh, I was, I was raped at age 16 and this caused this in my life. And it's like, it, it can lead to a web. And, you know, I, I think I'm very grateful and lucky that like I had the resources when I did to confront, to confront that and really look, um, re really, you know, further my healing. And in your second portion of your story, the March of 21, what was the impact experiencing assault as, like, I don't want to say necessarily again, because you had talked about how there was kind of this decade and mm -hmm. of just negative coping mechanisms. And yes. so there, there was a lot of situations that happened within those 10 years that were just constantly uh, th there were multiple assaults in your life within those 10 years. But then after that, kind of looking at the second portion of your life, when you felt like you said, you let your guard down and that's a terrible thing to even feel like I have to let my guard down, that I just can't be vigilant, that somebody just could walk in and do whatever. But in your mind, I, things were going good. Things were, you know, good news about, cause you said at that point you had good news about your dad's cancer. You got promotion at your job. So things were just going good. And you're like, Hey, I've reached this point. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's this re-traumatization. There's this re-victimization that is happening. So what's the effect and impact in your life from that in, in your perception? Yeah, um, that right at first, I definitely shut down. There was so much physical pain, mental pain, and, you know, emotionally, I was struggling really bad because I, even though I had started healing and had really knew myself in regards to my mental health, you don't ever expect <laughs> 
something like that to happen. Um, you know, we are not meant to live in fight or flight. Right. We are meant to fluctuate and be able to approach fight or flight when we need to. And then we're, and then, you know, we're meant to then go, go back to a more regulated state. And I, it did make me question for a little bit there. Like, am I safer being ready to, you know, like, should I be on the ready at all times? Am I safer that way? Do I need to be on guard 24 seven? Um, and it did kind of make me do that um, and be right. And especially with this person, um, you know, they, of course, I think it was a couple of days, but they did locate him. But, you know, I was very well aware, at least a few weeks after, like, he's, he's free, he's roaming around, you know, no protection order or lack of guns is going to prevent him from find, finding me, even though I did not go back to my place at first, it was a long time. Um, I think it was maybe a month and a half or so until I went back to my place and like stayed there. Um, and even then I was staying with my mom was staying with me as well. Um, but I think that that, you know, that definitely looked very different. Um, yeah, that after that experience and having to go through that did change my perspective a little bit at that time. Um, and then I was able to rethink through it in ways that um, helped my healing and kind of retell myself this new story of who it is that I am and what, and, you know, really opening up the future of like, I now see a future for myself. Um, because if we don't see a future, I think that's a lot, you know, and I think Diana had brought this up um, on the beginning of your last podcast as well, which is, you know, like, I think she said something around the line of she didn't want to be here or didn't want to be alive, but she didn't necessarily want to not be here. And, you know, that was a big thing too, for me, um, throughout not just that decade, but also after 2021, which was, I had a lot of suicidal ideation. And I think we tend to also think that people who have experienced sexual assault and then have suicidal ideation want to, you know, are suicidal. And a lot of the times they actually want to live more than anything. They just don't want to live this reality. And that's how my case was as well. I did not want to live the reality I was going through, especially with the justice system built how it is, especially with, you know, the fear of something happening again. Um, so I really had to change my perspective. Thankfully, gratitude journaling was something I started prior to March of 2021. And, you know, that also is a huge aspect, something that is life-changing. Um, being able to, you know, you don't have to be thankful for your experience. I will never say everything happens for a reason because I truly don't think it does. I think bad people are, right. are sometimes the reason for things happening. That being said, we can look back on it and say, okay, that was the reason why this happened. Um, and that gives us our power back. And without going into too much depth, just because you and I have talked a little bit prior to this, can you just acknowledge the complexity of going to trial 
in your in your case? Yeah. So you know, one of a lo- one of the first questions a lot of people asked me is it or you know a couple questions is he in jail? Did you press charges? Did you go to the police? And this is for your second scenario, correct? That we're talking. Correct. Okay. Yes. Correct. And actually, that that all was asked the first time. I just didn't. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I think, and I, I don't think people are m- malicious when they ask that. And there are some people who I think are genuinely curious and are coming from it care- in a caring way. So, you no, know, but we do need to do better in a lot of areas. <clears throat> One of the, them being thinking that justice for someone means the justice system. I know in my case, justice meant certain parts of the justice system, but then the rest of it looked like doing my trauma-informed coaching certification. It looked like being able to volunteer my time to help other survivors. It looked like coaching and therapy, and it looked like a massage therapist that was trauma-informed before therapy that to make sure that I could still feel someone, you know, touch my skin and um, justice for me, although at times it was to complete the criminal process. And, you know, I do have the statute of limitations gives me ample time to do so if I want to, but, um, you know, that for me, it was more traumatizing to go through that process. Um, and so it ended up just looking like getting that protection order in place. Um, and, making sure that, you know, hopefully that would prevent this person from um, taking a weapon and and doing what he did to me, but also to other people. Um, You know, one of the statistics that Rain reports on is that more than two thirds of rapes are not not reported. It's actually around like 20% of rapes are reported. And only 1% of rapes are convicted. And as I mentioned earlier, 98% of rapists will never spend a day in jail. So think about that process. It could be years before someone, and a lot of back and forth. I know in my case, my attorney was not good. Um, I'm very grateful for my, um, for my sexual violence advocate. Uh, she was wonderful. And there were a lot of parts of the process that I am so, so grateful for in my sex crimes detective and my judge, but the process is ugly. And unfortunately, the person who hurt me was a former law enforcement, which I had later found out. And he he knew things about the system that I didn't know. And so no matter what, it's hard to go through that process. There's parts of the process, such as needing to see the perpetrator. Um, I hope by the time I leave this earth one day that I change that. <laughs> I don't know why we or our family need to come in face to face with a perpetrator. That's not there. There's literally no benefit in that. Um, something big that I always think about is how, and and don't get me wrong, this is how it should be. This this part is how it should be, which is that everyone is innocent until proven guilty, and I believe in that very much. But why is it then that victims are always liars until proven innocent? That, you know, I know the word alleged is thrown around a lot. And I actually had um, someone at at my work say to my face, 
the alleged crime. Wow. Um, alleged means possible, but no proof. That is what alleged means in regards to crime. I'm sorry, but if I'm telling you something, <laughs> you need to believe that it's true, especially if you don't have a reason to not believe that it's true. And so to be, you know, it's one thing for um, media, judges, prosecutors, and law enforcement to say the term alleged. Um, but to say that to a victim is not okay. And there's there's just so so many complexities. It's also the cost. I could not pay to get an attorney. I could not pay. And, you know, I have, I come from you know, a middle-class family. I you know, had a great childhood growing up. I was doing, I was doing well for myself at that time financially. Um, and I still couldn't afford to go through that process and miss the work and to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had to go with, you know, a, someone who was sourced by the advocacy, the government advocacies that are set up. Um, but that also is, there's so many barriers. There's also the fear of the perpetrator hurting, you know, it was very clear to me that once I would report this, um, and there was even a message sent to me, which actually was great because it's in writing, right? So, um, but if I, um, like statistically, it's proven that more people, the reason most people don't report is because of fear of the perpetrator. And then second, it's that they are fearful to tell other people their stories. And a part of those people also are fearful of not being believed. Um, and there's also, you know, of course, crime or not crime, but there may have been illegal activities or you have like when I was going through college, um, it's like 13% of people have all at campuses have been have been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. um, yet, you know, a lot of them are drinking alcohol, myself, you know, included at times. Um and, you know, I know in my case, I had a scholarship, you know, I had, I, other people have scholarships or sports or, you know, things that they, they cannot get in trouble. And thankfully we have some laws and rules in place now that weren't at that time. But I know for a lot of people, an active warrant, um, you know, there's, there's other things too that prevent people from reporting that really do a disservice to the overall public. And so that's part of the reason why some people just truly choose not to report. Exactly. Exactly. Because, I mean, unfortunately, you and I both know that it's not 100% of things are reported. But some people don't even know that they need to report it. I mean, and that's... You might not see it as... And in my experience, too, I didn't mention my experience in my teens to anyone for besides, like, the one friend who, um, that I had at that time that I had told, um, but it's not like I told my parents or like, but your friend normalized it. Exactly. And we live in a very, you know, um, and I know the one thing we talked about the other day in regards to like how society normalizes coercion and control was, um, I, I've heard this example recently and I actually rewatched the part, the part in the notebook which mind you, if you have, if you have a lineup of people and ask them what the most romantic movie they've ever seen is, even myself included, I would probably, and it's, 
it's not. I actually thought about it. Walk to rem- remember that was by far the most romantic um, and like one of my favorites. But the notebook was if I need to think on the fly, I'm going to say the notebook. A and, lot of people say the notebook. And I've never seen it. So I'm just going <laughs> to. Which is just wild to me. Um, it. It, it, I was never like I, I was never into romance stuff like just never like I thought it was just dumb is how I, I mean honestly even as a teen I just thought it was but anyhow like I'm sorry that's if it wasn't for the fact I would want you to watch it but now I'm kind of like I don't know um but Leonardo DiCaprio he's hanging from the Ferris wheel at a certain point right and he's he's telling um the woman in it he's hanging from there while she's on a date and he's saying, I will let go if you don't go out with me. And she says, no, get off, stop being, you know, dumb. (laughs) And he lets go of one hand and says, I will let go if you do not. And honestly, as I'm saying this, it's even a little triggering now that I'm like hearing the way I'm saying it and how he said it, which he was threatening that he was going to let go and fall from that Ferris wheel if she did not go out with him. And finally she said, yes. And then all of a sudden society, we've romanticized that. Mm -hmm. Oh, this guy must love her. He must treat her right. This is what romance looks like. This is what love looks like. Um, I think we're doing a little bit better because there are now a lot, like I, I think people are starting to see Hey, that's not a healthy relationship. That's definitely, there's some red flags there. Um, You know, but it's really sad. There are people who don't know that that's not healthy. Exactly. And when we see it in this romantic movie that has, you know, is one of the most popular movies in the world um, with the most popular actors and actresses, it's like, is there something wrong with it? You know, it, mm. e- it's very easy to think that there isn't. And as a young, I think the first time I probably saw the notebook was maybe, I don't know, 13, 14. Like we start to, and I know Disney movies are kind of the same way. Some of them, yeah. it's like, we start to normalize that, um, this politeness and this, this vision of what love and romance looks like. And we start to like really idolize that. Um, but if that were to happen now in real life, um, that is abuse. <laughs> so if anyone's experiencing someone hanging from a Ferris wheel, um, I want you to, you know, uh, maybe call it that from now on, you know, cause that's not, <laughs> you know, we, we laugh, but the sad part is, you know, there are people that are truly in abusive relationships like yes. that. And, um, Yes. Like I'm just and laughing can be my coping mechanism sometimes. Too. I'm thinking <laughs> I'm thinking of multiple people that I personally know that I would describe um their relationship in the ways that you've described and um and it it, it genuinely breaks my heart because um like no matter and I think part of it was actually I I'm thinking of one where like so many people, just so many people were like, don't do this. Don't, I mean, they're like, look at the red flags, like, don't do this. And this person just felt like they, they were out of options. Like this was, this was the best that they were ever going to do. And it, it just, um, I, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise. Things are not well what's in their life. After that? I, like what's next, you know, it's kind of like that, 
if, if when that happens and if it's happening early on, especially in a relationship, it's like, yeah. what's going to be the next thing? And that's very scary to think about. Yeah. Manipulation and control. Um, so if anybody is listening, I mean, I know say the pain is kind of a place where there's some heavier topics, but this is a place where it's really important to just say the realities of, Hey, this, this is actually something. And we're not even saying some people might just think that that's how you operate in a relationship, but I think it warrants the conversation of, Hey, um, if somebody is manipulating you and threatening their own well-being to manipulate you to do something, um, we need to make sure that person is okay. And we need to make sure you're okay. Yeah. And a lot of times that person, um, and you know, and that person, whether or not it's in a domestic violence relationship, a friendship, a assault. Um, I know in my own experience, the person that hurt me and actually anyone who has ever hurt me or said something that was verbally not nice or physically or, or, or like physical violence, typically it came from people who were very hurt. I mean, I know that relationship wise, mm -hmm. um, I have been with men who have experienced sexual, sexual childhood abuse. Um, and, or, you know, physical violence. And I know, you know, the person who, um, really hurt me in 2021, there were so many aspects of that. And there was also trauma from, I think from, you know, the law enforcement side of things and, and don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. You know, I think about like that Nashville school shooting that just occurred and I'm sorry, but I could never, never, never walk into a situation like that and have to see what the things that they have to see and do the things that they have to do and then go to work the next day and not expect to be in survival mode. I get it that people are trained to do and act certain ways, but we're also human and our body is not wired to turn certain parts off. We can say we should. And, you know, of course there are, you know, people who really, you know, that that's, they'll use that as an excuse and it's not for them, but, I think that, and that's why my mission also in life is literally to heal, heal more people and create a world with more healed people and less hurt people. Because I truly think that when one person hurts one other person, they're hurting their whole, that person's whole family and friends. And then when they hurt them, they hurt their whole workplace and then they hurt their whole community and their whole church and their, and it, it's a cycle. Whereas when one person heals, that is also a cycle. So, you know, when we're able to heal ourselves, we're able to get ourselves out or help those relationships we're in, um, or at least not hurt those relationships we are in. And um, so it always makes me wonder when I hear something about um, domestic violence or someone threatening, you know, especially I know a big thing is threatening of suicide um, in relationships when it comes to violence and abuse, um, that that's common. And, you know, it does make me question what, what kind of pain is it that that person is going through to want to hurt another person like that? Mm -hmm. And one thing that Alexis has been talking about, um, 
you know, the fight or flight, you know, living in that constant state of like survival. Um, and you talked about like, we're not designed for that. And so you're talking about the nervous system really and how our bodies are wired. So why don't you just talk a little bit about fight, flight, freeze. If you want to talk about fawn, that's fine. If not, that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. So the body, you know, when we're trying to survive, we are trying to, our body typically unconsciously is going through every single possible way to survive. So, you know, if you take my experience, for example, I, my body acknowledged, okay, can I fight? Can I flight? Can I run away? Can I get out of here? I can't. Can I fight back? I have a butter knife and he has a loaded gun. No, I can't. Um, can I freeze? Yes, I can. And over time, we can really stick to different ways of coping. And that really does lead into kind of other coping mechanisms we may use. Um, and I know something that I had learned regarding flight, you know, if, if that is something that you needed to do in that situation, but you couldn't for whatever reason, exercise, things like that are probably better to help you heal because you're getting that energy out of, you know, in that emotion and you're, and you're helping your body finish that full cycle of, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to run. Um, but in other cases, I know, you know, a big thing I think about are hospitals and how I was in the hospital at one point prior to 2021 and having experienced sexual assault and then being put in a hospital, um, that's forcing me to be in freeze. And I do think that impacted the way that I approached other situations in the future. I think in situations where I could have fought or did flight and ran and got away, like my body did not acknowledge that because it knew that, okay, in the past I've, I've needed to freeze. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and again, there's never a reason I think we oftentimes when someone freezes, we again, victim blame and we as society victim blame, and we can blame ourselves as well and say like, why didn't I do that? Um, but realistically, like our body is trying to do certain, you know, it's trying to go through and try to, trying to do what it can to keep us alive and then get us back to a regulated state. Um, this can also lead to, and of course, complex PTSD can also lead to people becoming dysregulated for a very long time. Mm. And what overall helped you the most in getting through your experiences? Like if you, so we've talked about a lot of things and yeah, thank the Lord that you're here today. And it's quite a miracle that eight months after March 21, you and I were sitting in the same class. And even at that time, your dad was really sick because the cancer had come back and you were, like you said, October, you were just getting done with your trial. Your dad was going through an incredibly difficult journey. And how's your dad today? He is great. He, um, yeah, the scans just came back clean. Mm. And those are the first scans okay. that came back clean. And um, it's just such, such a, 
such a blessing and a miracle, honestly. Yeah. So um, I'm so grateful for that. And going through, but I mean, starting back at 1415, and I mean, you're here today and we've skipped over a lot of your story, but we've hit some pretty big pieces along the way. So if you were looking back at somebody like who has gone through sexual violence, what would you just tell them? Hey, this helped me. This helped me the most. Yeah. Um, telling yourself and truly believing it that you make sense and that it's not your fault. It is so important to know that it is not your fault and the future is still yours. Just because this happened does not mean that your story is over. And it can either, it can just be the start or it can be the middle and you could you know, keep going, but the rest of the pages aren't written just because of this having happened. Um, you do have like, you do have control. And even when people make you feel like you don't have control over this situation, um, you do. And whatever it is that you need and that your body needs and what feels good and safe and what gives you joy and pleasure take time to do that for you because you deserve that. And what uh, you mentioned, you mentioned you did talk therapy, but then you also went mm -hmm. to a trauma informed massage therapist mm -hmm. and you went to, uh, a lot of other stuff. Uh, <laughs> you went to a trauma informed therapist afterwards as well, who did EMDR. And then you, um, did gratitude journaling were some things that I, I just caught as you, went through. Yeah. But it sounds like, I mean, you did all those external things, but it kind of sounds like what you're looking back at somebody and saying is, Hey, the internal mindset of moving forward really matters. Yes. And I think this is one of those things that we like to think is black and white. We like to think that there's one solution. There's one option. Um, there is not one answer since we are so complex and we are such complex human beings being able to use multiple modes of healing is going to be where you get that sustainable healing for me the science was a big part the tools were a big part um but you know at times where it, and it's really becoming in tune with yourself a lot of that does mean sitting with yourself and only yourself and understanding, you know, when I knew that when I went to go and hug family members that I would get goosebumps and like not wanna hug family members. That was kind of the moment I knew, okay, I need to work with my EMDR therapist. And we determined, you know, with her, because I was still going through treatment and diagnosis of complex PTSD, it was, um, we decided that massage therapy would work. But then at a certain point, you know, it was that um, a therapist approved trauma informed weight loss clinic was the approach. And, you know, for me, that was something that if I didn't, a lot of the weight I had gained, um, and, and just to be very, very clear, that doesn't always mean trauma. That also doesn't always mean, you know, people can maintain, they can also lose weight. Um, but it doesn't, my health was something that was very important to me because the person I saw in the mirror was not someone who I knew. 
And so trying to find my identity again became something very difficult um, if I did not recognize that person. And so really focusing on like myself through health and food and exercise and nutrition and joy surrounding that. Um, and then ultimately talking with, you know, professionals that could help me get to a good place. Um, you know, it's so, it's such a wide range and it's so important to know that it's also important to know that you don't need to do all of that in a year. You don't need to do that all in eight months. You don't need to do that even in 10 years because it is literally a a journey and it's a lifelong journey. And if you go back to the beginning at any point, I know something that can come up a lot is like, why are we back here? I know my mom said that to me a few times. Um, like, why is this happening again? Why are you back here? Like you were doing so well. I just want to like remind everyone you're not back there. Mm. <laughs> You'll never be back there. Just because there's a bump in the road doesn't mean, and not just a bump, just because your body is reacting to a new trigger or something that is coming up, that is another piece of information that you now learn about yourself. That does not mean that you, that all of the healing has not been worth it. Um, so kind of keeping that in mind too is is really important, I think, too. And everything is very holistic. And that's why I believe so strongly. And I believe more and more in trauma-informed coaching every single day. Because I think it's just another one of those, you know, things. And I do know that like accessibility is something that creating a trauma-informed referral list and having it be with accessible resources and resources that are discounted or free or available in different areas or virtually is really important to me because, you know, I know at times um, when everything we know to be true and financially in our shelter and our family, like when all of that is disrupted, being able to do stuff like that is not always possible, but it's important that we provide, we as a society provide resources for everyone to work on that holistic healing and it can also look like faith and in you know i do want to bring that up as well um like my own faith came and went um during my journey and there was a lot of complexity with that as well um but i you know i believe that that's also a path that a lot of people take um or meditation or just even faith in there being a higher power, whatever that looks like for you. And how can those who have not experienced sexual assault support others who have, or maybe they suspect have? Yeah. So, um, three tips, one, give options. Um, I think that giving victims as much control as possible is the way to go when asked, you know, you can ask, what do you need? Or how can I help? A lot of the time they will not know what they need or how you can help. I know in my case, I was like, someone kill him. Sure. <laughs> and to be honest, I did not want to say that to my dad and grandpa because they probably would. So, um, you know, you have, but they don't know what they need. And I did not know what I needed a lot of the time. So kind of asking the questions of giving some options. Would you like me to come over and watch a movie with you? I could also just drop off dinner at the door and I don't even need to say hi. 
I can take the dog off of your hands for a weekend so you can like go and relax or would you just like me to add you to my prayers personally or at, at church? Um, being able to give options to someone I think is very helpful for them to say, oh, this one actually feels really good. I would like you to do this. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it's very difficult. No one really knows what they would do in that situation until you're there. Um, and, I, and healing does not, it, it's great to check in once they say something. Um, I think it's even more important to check in three months later. And I think that's for all trauma. I don't think that's just for sexual assault. I think that we tend to um, bombard. I noticed it with my dad as well as people bombarded with him with support, which I'm so thankful for. But then there's a time where things get quiet. And that's actually when people typically need the most support. Um, second, compassion in all spaces. That doesn't just look like in the medical field. That doesn't just look like with practitioners. That is compassion in all spaces, incorporate that into workplace, friendships, anywhere you can. And then lastly, um, what I'll be shouting from the rooftops forever, which is start by believing. Um, it's extremely rare, about 2% of reported rapes are false and 90% are true. And mind you, those are reported. So there's all the ones that are unreported that are true. Um, and there is, when you start by believing, that is suicide prevention. That is domestic violence prevention. That is sexual assault prevention. That is child abuse prevention. When we start by believing, we are giving someone the power and ability and allowing them permission to start their healing journey and keep believing. And you know, whether or not that looks like needing to educate yourself on re-victimization, keep believing. Um, and that doesn't need to look like, I believe you. It can just look like believing their reality because no matter what, they're experiencing this, whether or not the facts or whatever makes sense to you, it does not matter what it means to you. It matters how that person is perceiving the situation that they're going through. Um, and, you know, unless you are in law enforcement or a prosecutor or a judge, you don't need to worry about, you just need to be there to support. Um, you don't need to question whether or not they're, you, you should believe them. So um, I, I truly think that that is a life-saving, I think a lot of lives could be saved overall if, if we started as a society doing that a little bit more. And I know you had shared with me the first time you shared, you dissociated in your first situation. And when that happens and you're trying to recount to somebody what happens, it's really hard. I mean, because when you're in survival mode, you know, the, the logic part of your brain goes offline and you're purely operating in survival. And so when you ask somebody to describe a traumatic event, it's not sequential. It's not chronological. It sounds chaotic. And it's not going to make sense. <laughs> and I remember you for like, most likely, and you shared with me the first time that you did share, it sounded like that. Exactly. And I think, um, and that's why also I want to say, I do not at all 
blame, first of all, my parents were very young. They were a little over my age when I was that age. So, which is very scary because <laughs> I, I don't have any kids. I have coconut and that's enough right now. Um, it's a handful, but, um, but it's like, you know, they did the best that they could and they did great and they did support me in every single way that they knew how, but, you know, I do think about it. Like I, I didn't necessarily tell them where I was at. And then because of dissociation, bits and pieces are missing. I don't really know what happened. There's things that don't make sense. I also didn't know what terms. I think we're getting better as a society with our vocabulary and certain, well, in, I guess in certain ways we are um, in putting names to things that we might experience. Mm -hmm. But it's like, if I heard the story that I told my parents at that age, I'd be like, this is like, 10 different puzzles just thrown together and like, you know, someone takes one out and now it's nothing is making sense. And <laughs> you, um, and that's really important to keep in mind. That is a big reason why people feel that they shouldn't believe or, but unless you are the person, you know, trying to get justice for something and it's an investigation, um, it's, it's just not, it's not your place. And there's just more of a risk of, if you don't believe and that person was telling the truth and you approach them with not believing and they can feel that from you. Thank you so much for being willing to come and share. And again, I don't take it lightly. Anybody who comes on, I know what I ask of them when I ask if they will come on. I think most of us know what it would be like to get on and to broadcast some of the hardest parts of our lives. It's not not an enjoyable thing, but what I know is Alexis is a great tool and a great asset in the trauma-informed world. And it's important to her that other people do understand that there is hope and that there is a way out. And so I'm thankful that she's willing to share her experience. So Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you, Jen. Well, everybody, you have a wonderful day. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this content, please leave a review and share. If you'd like to donate, at this time you can do so via Venmo. You can learn more in the descriptions. Say the Pain will be back with another episode in two weeks. And until then, make a difference.